Tonight's scripture reading comes from the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Let us listen for the word of God. The Lord's word came through Haggai the prophet in the second year of King Darius and the sixth month on the first day of the month to Judah's governor Zerubbabel and to the high priest Joshua. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. These people say the time hasn't come, the time to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the Lord's word came through Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you to dwell in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? So now this is what the Lord of heavenly forces says, Take your ways to heart. You've sown much, but it has brought little. You eat, but there's not enough to satisfy. You drink, but not enough to get drunk. There is clothing, but not enough to keep warm. Anyone earning wages puts those wages into a bag with holes. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. Take your ways to heart. Go up to the highlands and bring back wood. Rebuild the temple so that I may enjoy it, that I may be honored, says the Lord. You expect a surplus, but look how it shrinks. You bring it home and I blow it away, says the Lord of heavenly forces, because my house lies in ruins, but all of you hurry to your own houses. Therefore, the skies above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld the produce because of you. I've called for a drought on the earth, on the mountains, on the grain, on the wine, on the olive oil, on that which comes forth from the fertile ground, on humanity, on beasts, and upon everything that handles produce. Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, along with all who remained among the people, listened to the voice of the Lord and to the words of Haggai the prophet, because the Lord their God sent him. And then the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the Lord's message to the people. I am with you, says the Lord. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, the defining disaster in ancient Israelite history, the exile, has finally come to an end. The cruel Babylonians are defeated by a relatively merciful Persian named Cyrus, who is hailed as a messiah by the prophet Isaiah. He's the only foreigner in all of scripture who is given this title. The Hebrew word is Meshiha, God's anointed one. For it is Cyrus who proclaims good news, gospel, to the exiled people, that at long last they are free to return to some semblance of normalcy in their homeland. It's a day to celebrate, to breathe out, to share hope with the next generation who now have at least the possibility of inheriting freedom and not bondage, honor and not shame. Acknowledging the deep and persistent pain of this long, dark night of the collective, the, the national soul, Isaiah announces the dawning of a new day by proclaiming comfort. Comfort, my people. See, the prophet's not all doom and gloom. The prophet is also comfort, is also gospel. At least for immigrants, for black, indigenous, and people of color, for LGBTQ folks, and for women in these United States, 
this past Saturday morning had what I like to think of as a bit of a prophetic feel to it. Good news, comfort, a deep breath, a day to celebrate. Van Jones fought through tears on Saturday morning to say on air that it is easier to be a parent today. And, and though Jack is still a little bit too toddlery to comprehend it all, I have to agree the voting population of our homeland turned out to the polls and even if only by a slim margin, ultimately rejected a litany of stains on the beautiful tapestry that is the American experiment, exercised at least from one large pale house in Washington, the demons which for four years have worked to diminish our collective humanity. People danced in the streets across the nation and even around the world because a cruel administration has been ousted by one which at least seems, at this juncture, to have the best interest of the global community in heart and mind. Now, I am not one to conflate our electoral politics with the election of God. I wouldn't say, for instance, that God chose Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for this moment in history any more than I would say that four years ago God chose Donald Trump. But I do believe that in the victory of this past week is a little taste of God's salvation for many, many Americans. Just as in the victory of Persia over Babylon was a little taste of God's salvation for the exiled Jews. It is right whenever we receive such liberation to drink it in. It is right to celebrate the recovery of hope for the people and for the land. We don't need to assign any, uh, the outcome of this election any ultimate religious significance for it to be greeted as the hopeful dawn of a new day. I greet it, and I know that many of us greet it as the hopeful dawn of a new day, and I don't think that's unfaithful. Biblical prophets, biblical hope, is never disconnected from the political realities of history. It's never confined, as modern Christians are prone to confine it, to ideas about what God is doing, uh, what God is going to do for us or to our enemies in the afterlife. And as a matter of fact, at the time the prophets are writing, Judaism doesn't really have a doctrine of the afterlife. Prophetic hope in God manifests as hope for justice and peace and freedom in this life, not some future otherworldly life. As Haggai, our prophet for tonight, professes it, prophetic hope is neither a passive optimism nor is it wishful thinking, but it is a commitment to join the living God in building God's household on earth, in history, even as it is in heaven. It's a commitment to the proliferation of these social conditions which reflect the purposes of God, justice, peace, and freedom across and throughout creation. Haggai writes, to and among the now liberated Hebrew people, he's what we call a post-exilic prophet. The people have already returned to their homeland. They're not still in exile. They've celebrated a taste of salvation, but it is certainly not more than a taste. Jerusalem is still not free in any ultimate sense. The Persians are benevolent overlords, but they're still overlords. 
just as the Babylonians had been overlords before, and the Assyrians before that, and the Egyptians in the collective national memory. See, Israel has long been an occupied territory. It's long been a colonized people, and I just can't imagine that anyone believed that that was God's long-term goal for this chosen nation. So their return to normal life in the land is not the fullness of salvation. But neither is it irrelevant to God's promise of salvation. It is one step along the way. It is one indicator that God has not abandoned. The next step, as Haggai sees it, is to rebuild the temple. That physical representation of God's saving presence in their collective midst, the, the temple is crucial to the people's ongoing participation in God's gift of salvation because the temple, well, the temple is for everyone. Isaiah calls it a house of prayer for all nations, so it's not even just for every Jew. As Isaiah sees it, it is for every person. The temple is also the community's primary means of addressing and correcting both personal and collective injustice, what the Bible calls sin. The temple is where people can tell the truth about ourselves, can grieve the pain and loss that our callousness have wrought, and then, from a place of forgiveness, of atonement, set out to live differently. Well, of course, every society needs such a place, doesn't it? And so the people start rebuilding the temple. But fairly quickly, maybe predictably, uh, the construction grinds to a halt. As one after another, the volunteers, uh, the volunteer laborers kind of peel off to tend to their own personal matters, to, to build and then to rest in their own personal homes. It is this situation into which the prophet Haggai is called to speak. Haggai's word of the Lord comes against his fellow citizens, whose concern is shown in this moment to extend only as far as their own personal comfort, who, as soon as their own house is back in order, abandon the collective project of rebuilding the holy household for the whole people of God. Is it time for you to dwell in your, old, in your own paneled houses, Haggai asks rhetorically, while the household of God still lies in ruins. Now, we could undoubtedly name any number of factors at any particular point in history which prevent God's promise of salvation, which prevent the life that God intends for creation from coming into full bloom. But one of them, at least as Haggai sees it, is plain and simple self-centeredness. As long as I got what I need, I'm not going to concern myself with whether other people have what they need. As long as I have opportunities to succeed in the land, then as far as I'm concerned, the land must be successful. As long as my 401k is in good shape, then I'll vote to maintain the status quo, even if the status quo is 400 years of white supremacy. As long as I'm not still being personally offended or embarrassed by the prominent faces and voices of our nation, well, then I guess I've done my part, and I need not lend a hand 
to ending the offenses and indignities systematically levied against my less privileged neighbors. The Americans, no matter how we voted in this election, do well to heed Haggai's word of the Lord. Self-centeredness may yield what we personally desire in the short term, but it prevents the salvation that God intends for the whole creation in the long term. It is only in centering the whole household of God, the house of prayer for all people, the, the house of atonement, or to use modern language of reparation for our mortal sins. It is only in centering the whole household that we may ever hope to participate in the new day dawning. Haggai's antidote to self-centeredness, the way he would have us center the whole household, is this. It's worship. It's sacrifice. It's mercy. It's the ritual practice of decentering ourselves, standing in awe and wonder at how much bigger and more beautiful this universe is than our individual experience of it could ever reveal. You remember how earlier I mentioned that the prophets don't have a doctrine of the afterlife? Life with God for the prophets is not a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of earth, of land, nation, neighbor. The prophets are convinced that sincere and humble worship at the center of communal life is the key to right relationship with land, nation, and neighbor. And that when these relationships are just, when they are as God would have them be, heaven saturates earth. Divinity dwells in the midst of humanity. See, salvation in this view is, is more of a cycle than it is a destination. We build the temple so that we all may worship. We worship so that we all may practice justice. We practice justice so that we all may taste heaven on earth. We represent and embody heaven on earth by building a house for the whole family of God. We build with hammers and nails, with bricks and timber, and we build with law and mercy, love and justice, boldness and humility, confession, repentance, reparation, and peace. May it be so in the church and in the world, through Christ Jesus our Lord, this day and forevermore. Amen.